Hey, it's Alexis Haynes, and this is my podcast, Recovering from Reality. Today we have Sydney Montana with us. She is, um, I'm assuming you're an Instagram follower. Yes. She reached out to me the other day when, what topic was I speaking on? I don't remember what it was. I do not recall okay. either. Sorry, Alexis. It's okay. <laughs> um, but she reached out because, and this is something that I actually wanted to cover because it's something that I find really interesting. And I know that we have a lot of parents that listen to this podcast too. Um, so you had reached out to talk about this program that your parents put you in when you were 15. And you, you know, spoke about the experience that you had and how traumatic it was for you. And instantly I messaged you right back and I was like, when can you come on the podcast? Um, Because that's what Recovering from Reality is really about. It's about sharing our collective trauma with not just people who have thousands of followers on Instagram, but like everyday people who go through severe trauma and how they overcome that. So why don't you share with us a little bit about um, what what took place? Let's go back if you're comfortable. And I know you haven't spoken about this before, so it's definitely not like an easy thing to do. Um, And I really you know, commend you for stepping up and doing this. Cause I know that it's not an easy thing, but let's go back to, you said that this took place when you were 15. And so that's almost 10 years ago now. Yep. Um, and kind of how it all transpired, like what led to your parents putting you into one of these programs? Interesting question. Let's get into it. So I think that there were a series of events and, um, a number of years that had led up to this, I think that starting off as a child, I think that there were many times professionals brought in place that were either unnecessary or overbearing throughout my childhood. I'll just jump in right here and say this. Um, From third grade, I was actually put on Adderall. Mm. I was told I had ADHD. Um, I was in and outside of psychiatrists, therapy offices, And the feedback that I was getting from parents, teachers, relationships, and I will say that this has, that I have been told that I have had behavioral issues since I was three years old and that I have always seemed to. literally, that's shocking to me. Absolutely. Because it's like, what three-year-old is in a little asshole? Like my three-year-old's a little asshole right now. It's like, it's it's a very hard very, very hard age. And you don't even start developing, for anybody who doesn't know this, you don't start developing a prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for all of your impulse control until age 10. I believe it. So you're told in third grade you have ADHD, but you're probably just a normal child that's maybe experiencing whether it's from your parents not really being attached or um, their lack of... um, you know, just skill set as parents or being overly stressed or whatever, not knowing how to deal with you. And so as a result, maybe there was some behavioral stuff as a cry for help. Like I need, you know. A thousand, thousand percent. And Mm -hmm. when I look back at my childhood, I can can say that I was always taken care of. I always had food Mm -hmm. on my table. I always, I had wonderful education. However, there were 
always differences with my family and I. I am adopted. I was adopted from birth. Mm. Um, I was in a closed adoption. That's actually very complicated. Maybe we can get into that later on um, as well. Um, but I had also had a very severe attachment to my parents where as a kid, I don't know if, like I said, looking back because of trauma, I don't know what was said or what was really going on in that household other than pure dismissive parenting. So I could go back to examples of just feeling not heard, of telling my parents from incidents in school, probably from kindergarten until high school and beyond, telling my parents, hey, there's a bully or there's something going on in school or there's a teacher that's picking on me. And the response was, what are you doing to them? Mm. What are you doing? Because your behavior is crazy. You are a you are a dramatic person, a spoiled person, and you must deserve whatever somebody is giving to you. So mm. that was how I was raised. Now we can go into how my parents were raised and we can say they they had rough upbringings and they also did not have the most gentle of parenting. Yeah. Now for me that would make me into a more attentive, informed, educated well, exactly. parent. Well, exactly. I had a horrendous <laughs> upbringing. We all know that's the case. Yeah. And like, I am, I'm not a perfect parent by any means, but I am a very, you know, present parent who is like emotionally stable and healthy. And, you know, so while yes, I do believe that we're all doing the best we can, that dismissive behavior doesn't lead to a secure attachment. You may feel really attached to your parents because of being adopted or because they felt like the only really safe thing in your world, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't dysfunctional. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, to be honest, because of all of my experience kind of wrapped up in one, it has probably taken me until my mid-20s to really even identify or understand or be able to decipher the trauma and be able to tell myself that that was not okay what had happened and what happened to them was not okay and this whole cycle of passing this along generations of dismissive attachment and um it's not something that i would like to continue in my life with any type of relationship that i've had because it actually translated of course into every single other relationship. relationship That I've yes. ever had. And that's the way it works. Like until we deal with our trauma, we are continuously um, uh, we're attracting these people into our lives to work it out. Absolutely. So you grew up, your parents were really dismissive of your feelings. And as a result, you were maybe displaying some a- Absolutely everything. Out. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Absolutely everything. I think um, when it comes down to who I was at that time that I began to actually begin experimenting with drugs or hanging out with the wrong crowd i will say that my behavior was out of control for for that Mm -hmm. age group for you know for how i grew up for where i grew up it was just i just began displaying narcissistic behavior completely defiant behavior um i was experimenting with drugs i was very very promiscuous um i was stealing i was um acting out in school in a way that the teachers were calling the police on me. Mm. Now, prior to even being put in the program that we're talking about today, 
I did go to a 30-day rehab facility mm-hmm. at 15. Prior to that, I was also, um, or I'd also been in psych ward for trying to hurt myself when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was all leading up to 15 years old and having being sent to the program. So there were already numerous attempts to kind of intervene, but it was a very, um, it, it, the, the approaches that were taken at that time were, I, I do not think that they were meant to understand me. I yeah. think that they felt they were more, more like harmful punishment. than they were helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, have a, I have two questions and you don't have to answer if you don't feel comfortable. Yeah. Was there any early childhood sexual abuse? Absolutely not. No. Okay. No. Because sometimes when people talk about promiscuous behavior, like a lot of times that goes hand in hand. And then the second question, but it can also absolutely deal with attachment. Totally. Right? Like if you're not having like strong attachments, then you're going to attach to other men and other people in your life or other sexual partners trying to get that love that you really desire. So there's that. And then the other thing was, um, what substances were you using at that time period? At that time period, my drug of choice would definitely be alcohol and marijuana. Okay. And um, on top of that, I was prescribed numerous psychiatric medications. Who even knows what I was on at that time? On top of antidepressants or antipsychotics or whatever they were putting me on at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, On top of that, I I had done cocaine when I got out of my first rehab facility. Oh, and I tell this to all the parents out there. I just want you to know that your kid that goes into rehab for alcohol at 13 will come out addicted to heroin at 14. It's it's you know, I laugh about it, but it's because it makes me extremely uncomfortable. I mean, it it truly being exposed and being put into these totalistic kind of environment uh, treatment environments where everyone is given the same program not in every place is case by case so that doesn't mean everything yeah. is wrong or it does not mean that the education that I received did not help um however at that time for what it did for me my thing was I just uh, you at a certain point I did develop this just complete defiance just complete lack of regard for I would say for authority I don't like the um the label oppositional defiance or anything like that but that was kind of what I was doing so when I had gotten out of rehab for at I had turned 15 in rehab for pot and alcohol use I um, had actually did cocaine because I thought that it would not show up in my system mm-hmm. so it's like these like it doesn't even I mean cocaine doesn't equivalent to weed or alcohol but yet that was my 14 year old premature thinking oh I heard that I can get away with this and not this. And lo yeah. and behold, I didn't get away with it. I didn't get away with much as, yeah. <laughs> as a kid. Yeah. I didn't, I seem to be the one to always get caught. So, <laughs> well, but it also seems like, um, so here's the thing. There's this amazing book by Dr. Gabor Mate. I love him. His book is called hold on to your kids. And it's all about how, when we don't develop healthy attachments with our children, Later on in life, they begin attaching to other children. And there's many different reasons for that. Both parents out of the household, which is absolutely a necessity for the vast majority of the population now, um, with the amount of kids that are in after-school care until 6 p.m. With So they're developing attachments to each other and not to the parents. And he his book is amazing. It talks about how you know we can develop those attachments even if we're both working, even if we're doing all these things. But... His theory and the attachment theory, um, you know, is that your goal is to make um, the child feel so comfortable to come to you with anything 
and to help you process anything that, you know, eventually they start to build up healthy ways of processing their emotions and moving through challenging experiences and then becoming resilient, healthy, well-rounded human beings. And so here's the thing. So your parents are, oh my gosh, what are you doing? Well, how is this your behavioral issue, right? So they sound like they were much more concerned with your behavior than your emotions. Absolutely. Right? So then what happens is you need to numb the emotions because you were never given the tools to deal with them as a child. And so what I would have done with my child is go, okay, what happened? So my child gets bullied in even in kindergarten. And so we'll role play, right? So what did she say? Okay, I'll pretend to be hurt. Now you be her. And we'll go back and forth and just like work through these things. So um, this very old school punitive approach to parenting we're seeing isn't working. We're seeing the results of kids who have attachment disorders I mean, we're sitting in my treatment center right now, and I'll tell you that like 95% of these kids, they all just have attachment disorders, right? That's the reason they turned to drugs the first. Yeah. It's the root. And actually, I just thought of a great example, and I would not consider this sexual trauma, but actually you could tell me if you do. Um, So in first grade, my, my parents had desired to get me into this great school. They finally got me into the school. It was probably my third week of first grade. And I won't forget this. I'm si- I was six years old. I was in the reading corner, and two boys had actually asked me to pull my pants down. Mm. Now, I, I, was, I would consider myself very sheltered, and I, I mean, I was six. I mean, I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't know what they were asking about. I did do what they asked me to do. Mm-hmm. So lo and behold... I do what any kid does, which is like, you know, bring it up to your parent in a very nonchalant way because I probably did not know how to process that incident. So I brought it up with my mother in the car and she goes, well, did you pull your pants down? And I said, yeah. So I go, no, you know? Mm. So then the the boys, you know, eventually, of course, it's a huge deal. I can, of course, I've wiped it off my mind, but they bring it up to the boys And they say, well, the boys said you did it. And I said, you know, so eventually, you know, I kind of like, I probably have a breakdown and I tell them, yes, I did it. My father ignored me for two days. And I remember just (sighs) never processing that, never quite understanding. And (laughs) we could get get into how that translates to um, me kind of not understanding my sexuality or being able to express myself at certain ages. Um, And yeah, very unhealthy. Yeah. So there was so much dysfunction and it's clear as day to me why you would go and use drugs. You know what I mean? And especially, yeah, you had touched on like the closed adoption and all of that history too. So there's just like a lot of stuff that clearly needed to be processed that just wasn't. And, you know, so you go into rehab for your first time and then you're, and here's the other thing when we're talking about attachment theory, right? Where, I'm not personally attachment an attachment parent, but I believe in like the Rye philosophy, and we'll get into that on another um, podcast episode. But um, when we're talking about building secure attachments, and then you go into these treatment centers, who do you form attachment to? The staff or the people around? Yeah, all of the other kids, everybody else, and so you're all bonding over this shared feeling of not being good enough, not being loved, 
not being cared for, that nobody's listening to you, all of this stuff. And you start to develop an attachment to the other kids. And I would probably say that that's exactly what happened when they sent you away for 15 months, which is insane. Absolutely. I mean, the, the crime was actually three times the amount that I had ever even, <laughs> I think I'd ever been smoking yeah. pot or doing anything. Yeah. I mean, when I actually looked at it and um, I mentioned to Alexis very briefly on my way in that I don't even have a story that compares to some of these girls and guys that have gone through these places. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely horrific. Um, and so I'll just go into kind of the incident that happened yeah. that led me to actually going away and all this stuff. So yeah. numerous times throughout high school, my freshman year, I was suspended from the school in a way that I would take the time off of school and completely screw around because my parents have to work during the day. You can't mm -hmm. be monitored. And I would be welcomed back into the school. They would give me a very firm warning and I would continue to just leave in disrespect. I mean, yeah. clearly, clear disrespect of just leaving, not caring about my education, um, and just doing whatever I wanted to do. Immediately when I walk into the school, the dean goes, you just walked out and walked back in. What's in your bag? And I, I mean, at that point, I said, you know, I have a little bit of pot. He finds it. He goes, 10 grams is not a little bit of pot. You're coming with me. I'm sorry. They um, go through a formal arresting where I'm just, you know, of course, laughing through the whole thing. I think this is just funny. I like the attention. I mean, I'm, I'm really, I honor it at the time, or I honor how I felt at the time, and I really did not give a shit. I mean, at this point, I had already failed my freshman year of high school, basically. I would not even gone to school. Yeah. And um, the school that had, you know, put all these, now all of a sudden they're arresting me, but just mind you, they had not followed up on any of the actions that they'd put in place to follow up with my behavior before. So this is seven months into the school year. It was going into June or something like that. So I get kicked out of school, and my first instinct is, you know, after the, I don't even know what's going on with the arrest or whatever, is I'm going to throw a party now that I'm out of school and that I'm going to get away with it, and I'm going to do it during the school day where I can have kids over because for some reason it was so enticing to me probably because I was so sheltered because I was the one that always had the 8 p.m. curfew even though I was going out I was doing everything at 8 p.m. going back in when my I was very um sheltered and I I knew what I can get away with and I wanted to do this during the school day and have everybody from my school join us it was the age of Facebook I put an event page on Facebook <laughs> I think I saved more money for that than I ever have for anything in my, oh my life, God. too, in the matter of like a week. <sighs> so we'll just throw that away for a minute. So I'm on Facebook, literally typing away at my computer. It's May 13th, 2008, which is like the crazy year. And I am sitting at my computer. I'm on Facebook where we used to write statuses and stuff like that or whatever at that time. And... My dad walks into my room. Mind you, I do not have a cell phone at the time because it was stolen. So remember, we didn't have much communication other than our sidekick yeah. or, our, or our Facebook. That was it. And um, you had to be at a desktop to go to your Facebook. Not everybody carried around a laptop. So, and I'm 14 or 15. And so I am sitting at my computer. My dad comes into my room and he goes, hey, he goes, we're going to go look at a boarding school tomorrow. And I look over at him, I'm like, okay, when are we coming back? Because I knew that I had this party planned. I'm like, oh, as long as I'm back from my party. I said, where is it? He goes, oh, it's in Utah. And I said, well, what's the name of it? I don't remember it. He goes, I, he says that he doesn't remember what the name is. And 
again, that is how gullible and stupid I was at that time. I mean, I really like, I just didn't care as long as I was back for my party. And I said, well, where are we, how are we going to get there? Oh, we're flying into Vegas. Oh, can you take me shopping? I mean, the questions that I had asked him were just insane. And he goes, oh yeah, we'll take you shopping. I mean, he's playing into it too. And so, um, he tells me that we're going to go to Utah the next day, that we will be back by the next morning. Perfect timing for my party. So I was like, oh, that's wonderful. I mean, not that he knows about it. So we fly into Vegas because to get to this town in Utah, you have to fly to Vegas and drive from Vegas first. Yeah. So we fly to Vegas. I get to the airport. I remember asking my dad to buy me a pack of cigarettes, um, which he says no. I was listening to American Boy by Kanye West and Estelle on the radio. I had no phone, no computer. I was wearing hardtail low pants because I thought I was going to see boys. And I thought it was like Zoe 101. I'm like, I'm going to look at this cool boarding school. (laughs) So we're driving from Vegas to Utah. And I... I mean, it never really, really dawns on me other than the fact that it's kind of getting late. Like, it's like 7 p.m. Like, what type of place gives a tour this late? I'm like, oh, it's summertime, whatever. But I really don't know what's going on. I don't even care. I just want to, you know, I'm just all for the fun of just being, maybe just the thrill of being with my dad, which, by the way, they sat him separately from me on the plane or like he had chose to sit separately from me on the plane in which I was next to a woman who asked me, where are you going? She's like, what are you, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm going to look at a boarding school. She goes, you don't think your dad's going to leave you? And I'm mm. like, no. Literally had that in in the same day as this incident. So um, we arrive in the middle of Laverkin, Utah, which is a desolate place, completely desolate. I think it has a, a population of like 200 people maybe. And I've never seen anything like this in my life. I'm from downtown Chicago. I lived my whole life within four miles. I'd never seen yeah. anything like it. I literally thought that it was when we had passed the school, because it does not look like a school. This place is a program. It looks like a motel mixed with a prison. Like it's like a motel surrounded by gates. And um, I'd actually not even think, we thought that it wasn't the school. We drove past it initially because we're like, oh, that can't even be it. So then we drive back into the parking lot. And when I think back, there's uh, two staff that are very large individuals waiting on either side of the parking lot. They bring a, they bring me into like a corridor room, kind of like this unattached garage kind of thing. And they sit me down, literally 10 seconds. A, a woman named Beverly, or we'll take that out. <laughs> a woman says to me, this is Cross Creek. Welcome. We have this many boys, this many girls, and your father is enrolling you tonight. And I said, like, spend the night? Like, I'm spending the night here? And before I even knew it, they restrained me. I mean, they grabbed me, and they said, you please say goodbye to your dad, give him a hug. And I was like, fuck you. You know, this is over with. Like, I mean, I don't even know. I was just, I didn't know where, I couldn't even process in that moment. Yeah. And I didn't. And that process. alone is traumatic. Like being restrained as like a, you know, a very early teenager is a really scary thing. To absolutely, go absolutely. So they're grabbing my arms, and I'm, 
when you're in that moment, and I'll, I'll never forget my first few questions that I'm asking them and what my experience was in that moment when they grab me, I don't know where the hell I am. And I don't know what type of boarding school this is. I'm like, where's the tour at? Where are we going to see this great place that's going to help me? Because at that point, I mean, I figured in my mind, even at 15 years old, I still had hope for my future. I still yeah. wanted to to change. I mean, even at that age, I'd already gone to, to a rehab facility and been given some type of education. I knew that change was necessary at that moment. Quick break from today's podcast episode to talk to you guys about taking care of our mental health. You know that I'm a huge champion for mental health care, and I really believe that it is as important as taking care of our physical health. Did you know that one in five college students suffers from mental health issues? It's no surprise here. I mean, the added stress in our lives of going to school, getting good grades, writing that term paper, doing our thesis, all of these things are really challenging. Cue Talkspace. Talkspace is amazing because you can access a therapist from your phone. No longer do you have to go and schlep your way into a shrink's office, sit for an hour, and then schlep your way all the way back. Their therapists are always in reach, in between classes, late night study sessions, or before a big exam. That is huge, you guys. The benefit to this, it will absolutely change your life. Right now, if you go to Talkspace.com forward slash student and enter the code Alexis25 at checkout, you will get a week of therapy for free. That's literally saving hundreds of dollars, you guys. I highly suggest you take me up on this offer. Again, if you go to Talkspace.com forward slash student and enter Alexis25 at checkout, you will be taking charge of your mental health and seeing an awesome therapist. So head on over there. And now back to the episode. In that moment, I I'm being pulled into the other building, which I did not leave for eight months behind bars, behind behind the gates of the facility for eight months. And it was to go to a dentist appointment the first time that I was able to leave. So when they bring me through to the facility, I'm asking as many questions as I can. Um, how long am I going to be here is the first question, of course. you know. And they said minimum six months, which means actually that your parents put down like a $30,000 deposit to get a discount on the program and which a lot of the parents did, but it actually is a minimum 12 month program based on actually graduating their principals, but nobody actually stays 12 months. It's way longer than that. Um, and so that was my first question. Then my second question was, when do I get to see my parents? And then they said, minimum six months if you earn it. I'm like, okay. And I said, well, when can I talk to my parents? They said two months with a therapist on the phone. And I'm like, okay. I can't even imagine as a parent do like I I can't I literally cannot even imagine sending my kid off no matter how challenging they are. I could not imagine sending my kid off and not seeing them for two months. I, I it would kill me. I can't even imagine. It is just so complex that I hope I can remember just all of these areas in which I feel that this was weird. My dad had never seen this facility. This was the first yeah. time that he was seeing it. So what they did was, this is the first step of what I would like to call brainwash or whatever you want to refer to this yeah. as programming. Um, they bring you into a room and then they probably brought my dad into another room. They, give, uh, they put my dad with a group of girls that have been in the program for over a year. These girls are well 
programmed by that time. Yeah. They're talking to him about how amazing their life was, how they were, how they used to uh, be on meth, and now their life is different. And um, they bring me into another room with four girls, where the girls begin to start processing me through. I'm sorry, you know, I start freaking out. Where, where am I? What am I doing? They tell me that I can't swear. They begin to remove my piercings. They begin to remove my shoelaces as if I'm a harm to myself, treating me like, you know, as if I had made some type of Mm -hmm. threat, but I did not. I just, you know, had gotten into the school a few minutes ago. They um, pulled out your hair tie. Yeah, your hair tie, your shoelaces, um, and pretty much your whole identity. I had a belly button ring. They take that out. Um, and if your hair was dyed a different color, which mine was not, they would actually dye your hair or cut it or change your hair color to kind of go back to your original or just to be less maintenance because Mm -hmm. it's going to be a long time until you earn the privilege of being able to do your hair the way that you would like anyway. Um, and it did not discriminate against the fact that I had very curly hair that was so like big and humid. So I had like this crazy hair for the first few months. So yeah, I get in and it was nighttime and I remember just they gave me a buddy and my buddy, I'll call her Sarah. Sarah was amazing and she kind of processed things with me. And she, she along with other people there had basically told me in that night, like, you're not going home. Like, this is, this is what it is and you're not going home. And unfortunately, you know, it's going to take a while to get used to, but you will. And I'm like, what do you mean? What is there to get used to, you know? we have to sleep so you know I go into the room and with the other girls and the first thing that I realized was we're not allowed to talk to each other we were told that we had to be on total silence at night the lights were put on dim so you could not even close your door you could have no privacy with the other girls and the lights had to be kept low because I was a new person and that they the staff had to patrol the room every 15 minutes to make sure that I didn't get up to leave in which I was not allowed to have. I had both my legs under the covers. They, they controlled how you had your legs under the covers. So like I had to have one foot with, with a sock on under my cover at all times. So I would not escape or leave. Um, so I remember that. And then next morning at breakfast being in total silence after running 10 laps, um, they controlled when you would be able to speak to each other on top of, um, a, having it's a, it runs on a point system so you work yourself up six levels in order to earn the right to graduate this system and you're meant to be held accountable for every action so in the morning after I had first got there my buddy comes up to me and she goes well we need to write you up for the categories that you had last night and I said what categories and she goes well you swore and you did this and I said well I didn't know the rules and she goes it doesn't matter you're held accountable for your first strike and your last. This is how you learn the rules. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and um, the staff can give you violations and you can write yourself up for violating the rules, which there were so many rules, it was hard to count. From um, So when, I'm, when you're first there, you're basically given a bright yellow shirt. You are at the bottom pit of humanity, basically, when it comes to the totem pole of that school. And... Um, you're given no privileges, and then you're basically introduced to your therapist and your group your first day where you basically get roasted by an entire group of oh. girls. Shame-inducing. Yes. That's so nice. Yeah, yeah. and then one of the That's first a processes... great that, way to help people change. Yeah, and like <laughs> one of the greatest ways that they... I mean, it's actually very strategic of them... It, they get you to write a confession letter 
is one of the first processes this that they literally put you on. sounds like scientology you guys like i'm not gonna lie like it it kind of sounds like scientology does there were people in our survivors group on facebook that had actually related it to world war one interrogations for communist parties when they were trying to like yeah. interrogate people to get them to break down and admit they were communist that was they use some of those strategies on us and it's it's brainwashed and it's programming I want to make sure that I'm able to like cover all all as much as I can but I mean this is like it's an what the dynamics and the complexity of what happened in this system is so is so intricate and they knew what they were doing my school I found out later was actually one of the founding programs of a chain of programs owned by one organization in the United States called WASP organization WWASP they were they're the worldwide association of specialty programs so they were a chain of behavior modification schools around the United States and world that were developed with this totalistic uh, thing, uh, concept in mind. The the goal of these types of schools is to first break you down to a place where you question everything that you've ever known. Absolutely. And then they do so in a way that's very shame-inducing, that's very, it's like crippling to like everything, you know, your whole being. And then there's trauma associated with that. So your body shuts down certain memories that you might have in certain areas of your brain. And then you go into survival mode. So you end up complying just solely as a means of survival. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, um, bringing back to what we were first talking about, I mean, I had not had my needs being attended to or my emotions. And now all of a sudden I'm in a 24-7 emotional environment where I'm told to process all of these things. One minute my therapist is giving me an angry speech. The next minute he's being very, he's consoling me. You know you can't really trust these people for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, by the end of it, I will say that you develop a love, you develop a respect, you develop some type of, you develop this obsession with with this place that's kind of what happened to me mm-hmm. i will say and then fast forwarding to when i actually got out of the program i had thought to myself well why why didn't everybody get sent here everybody should go through this place because this place is the only place that these people will know and learn and understand and that was my thinking as 17 years old a senior in high school because I actually did so much schooling in Cross Creek. And I was so, I mean, I consider myself a smart person. I did three years of school at that place and was able to graduate a year early. So lo and behold, they thought I was not going to be able to graduate high school. I graduated high school early in the end of all of this, which is actually insane. So, um, but yes, so going into um, kind of the group structure and how these places use manipulation and strategy to kind of get the best of your emotions, especially people that are not able to comply because they're, because not every person that walks in those doors is going to be able to comply. Some of those people should have been in actual psych wards. Some of those, I saw girls that could not speak English. There were people sent from the system and mind you, the boys and girls were completely divided. We only were seeing each other in seminars 
yeah. that we had that were more meant for like large corporations at that time um, that were very, very advanced for a young child to understand. Not that I did not, I mean, there's a double-sided coin to every situation and not that I did not learn anything from these experiences, but just going into um, some of the processes, it was a very demeaning experience. And so, for example, there was a process that the school was known for that I was never put on there. Um, it was called the desert process. And this was given to children that just did not comply. And if you were on the desert process, you were referred to as tumbleweed. And no one was allowed to talk to you. You were taken out of school, mm. which is, it's illegal to take a child out of school. Um, you, you were taken out of school. You were told to sit on a chair. And these girls would be sitting there for months. And once they would act out, they would then, you know, probably trample on them or, you know, um, restrain them and then bring them into an isolation room. And they would just, and, and mind you, on our female side, all of the therapists, including the director of the program, who was a former police night staff who had no psychological training, yeah. um, they were all men on the female side. So we had no female therapy or um, even really influence when it came to the school. Wow. Crazy. So after you complete the program and you graduate high school, uh, I want to go back and say, though, like when your parents first came to visit, what was that like? By then, I was fully in it. I mean, I lived and breathed this place. I thought that it was going to save my soul. I thought what they were doing was right. I thought my behavior was wrong. Mm -hmm. I started to develop what I learned to call anxiety. Um, Probably the anxiety I had my whole life, but I was never able to identify or really talk about or be able to express the word for it. But basically, I started developing. They also took me off of my meds there, which was very interesting because a lot of people were put on meds. I was actually taken off of my medication Mm -hmm. when I had gotten to that school. And I had developed this very severe anxiety around following the rules and thinking that I was doing something wrong. So constantly there, I was thinking, is somebody watching me? Do they see me? Mm-hmm. Did, I, did I remember to flip that light switch off? Yeah. Did, you know, I'm I can always, totally see how you'd get paranoid. And so yeah. the first time I saw my parents, they actually bring them to a seminar with you where they're trying to bring topics up and have you process it and great. I mean, the seminars alone would have just been great, to be, <laughs> to be honest with you. They're wonderful. Yeah. Um, and... I will say the experience of having to say goodbye, I have pictures, which I don't even know that why they were taken, where I am just distraught about having to say goodbye to them. I mean, if I ever had a child and I see me leaving a school yeah. when they're 15, 16 years old and they're clearly disheveled, I mean, I was freaking out every time I would see them when they would leave. It would just yeah. destroy me. But they would tell us that if we gave a big problem to our parents that we would be dropped levels and actually right after my parents had visited by the way I'd been there for six months and was only on level two and had only Mm -hmm. gained the privilege to shave my legs and crochet and um, right after that I had picked out a pimple on my forehead and my therapist saw me and said to me what is on your forehead and I said oh I had a pimple I was picking at it and he goes okay And then in group therapy, 
he says, Sydney, what's on your forehead in front of all the girls in my room, oh in the room? God. And and they all go, we saw her picking at it. I mean, at this point, everybody just wants to, everybody's out for themselves and everybody just wants to, and it's, it's almost fun at this point. This is what we do and this is how we operate. So everybody starts saying, oh, we saw her pick at it, blah, 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 blah. I was dropped to level zero, basically. And I was, again, shoelaces out, hair tie out, given a yellow shirt for punishment. I well, arm's length from staff. You can only talk to staff about food, water, bathroom, or medication, which I had actually, so I had actually asked to go to the bathroom one time and they had actually told me that I had to take a category regardless that it was an emergency because I was so anxious that day that they had dropped my level that I mean, I, I had gotten sick after dinner and when we had gone to the tape room, which is where they put you in a room with a bunch of like singular desks and you cannot raise your hand or you cannot basically lift a finger without asking for permission. You cannot drink from your own water bottle and you cannot conversate with the girls around you when you are on staff buddy. That is the name of it. So they put you on staff buddy when you break uh, that kind of violation. They had basically told me that I tried to harm myself by picking at a pimple. So I was treated as the same as if I had actually did try to harm myself. And so um, what they do is they play these tapes that were recorded in like the 80s and the 70s about books, literature, music. And then they have these Xeroxed test copies of basically these crazy quizzes about the about the tapes that you're listening to. So I would for that punishment, I think you had to do somewhere like 30 hours. So that's like a whole weekend. So the entire weekend while other people are just not even really having fun, they might just be watching a movie or something. You have um, your I was I was doing tape credits where I'd be listening to these tapes and you're being monitored by a staff and you're being told when you can go to the bathroom and not go to the bathroom or whatever. What was it like to acclimate post Cross Creek? I felt like a total loser to put it to put it bluntly I had all of this amazing confidence that they built me up with there I was a level six I had been and been and done this entire program I had outlived all the other girls I kind of made it to the top of the chain I really felt great about myself until I left the doors and realized that number one and talking about society this was the age of the recession I had not watched the news mm. in 15 months. I had also had no idea who Lady Gaga was. I had no idea what was in style. I remember going to the mall with my mom and I had also gained weight while I was there, which is of course like a huge thing with your self-esteem um, where I had saw two girls from high school at the mall in Forever 21 and I remember having a breakdown. That was the very first, like, Mm. I didn't even know. And at that time, okay, I'd already processed all of these things. I'm talking about everything. I didn't even know what to do with myself. Because here's the thing. These programs, they don't help you peel back the layers and become your authentic self. They help you build a wall, a shell around yourself. Totally. And when you go back into the real world, those things begin to crack, you know? Definitely. Definitely. So a lot of things began to crack and a lot of relationships that I had had, I had been, basically, I I was sober my entire senior year of high school out of complete fear 
that I would be sent back because you actually get six months free of your child being there. That's a great way to keep your kids there or keep your kids sober. So I was literally in, I was in AA, 16 years old. I was sober my senior year of high school. um, And I still felt like I did everything bad. So you complete the program at 17. You've graduated from high school. I'm assuming your parents pick you up. And what happens? Like, what is, how do you get to this point where you're 26 now? I'm 26. Yeah. And like sitting here today. Interesting. So I, I have been in and out of recovery for 11 years now. I mean, truly, I would say that at this point in time, um, I have recently started going to adult children of alcoholics meetings, which are for dysfunctional families Mm -hmm. or children that are in alcoholic homes. Um, This coincides with everything that you and I discussed at the beginning of this, that basically um, I have to... Where I'm at right now is I'm just at the beginning stages of processing what has happened in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the reality or my relationship with my family, my, my relationship with my family did not get better in the last 10 years. It's gotten much more toxic and much worse. Um, I have become a much stronger individual. I've become, um, I've been able to thrive and move away from Chicago and I moved to Los Angeles. I consider myself a serial entrepreneur. I do a little bit of everything here in LA. Um, and I am proud of myself from where I have been. Um, however, that does not translate to everyone praising me or thinking that yeah. that's going to be great. And really where I'm at now is still accepting and processing and trying to go through how I'm going to deal with distancing myself from my family because as much as I love them, as much as I have attachment towards them, and as much as they're great people does not mean that they don't they do not have good hearts. You know, I think that it comes down to, um, we are not going to, I do not feel that it is repairable right now. I have asked for therapy to be brought up in between us now that I'm asking for it and would love for a therapist to get involved. (laughs) I am ready. I'm like, let's go to a therapist. I have a therapist now. Um, wait, let me get into coping mechanisms and what I, what I do for myself. Um, Prior to moving to Los Angeles and California, I never did anything for myself. I mean, Chicago for me was a trigger and a toxic place all in all growing up there, being around the people that I was around. And until I removed myself myself from that environment, I did not do anything for myself. So I moved to Los Angeles. I have great groups um, that I work with that are from either ACA. I also go to SLAW, which is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, which helps me a lot with attachment and um, crappy male relationships, Mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships as well. Um, I participate in yoga. I have a plethora of actual hobbies now that I never have had before. And it actually took me, I mean, I would say from 22 to even 25, like last year, I mean, I really do feel that I was still a child or I was still, still coming out of the cocoon and I still am now. So I, um, but I work with a therapist and I make sure to stay active. And sometimes that turns into its own addiction. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that I have had numerous other addictions since the program, since starting recovery. 
I have developed caffeine addiction. I've developed um, work addiction. And that's definitely something that I find when I'm isolated or not able to reach out to someone. And I will say that recovery in all in all, you do need a support system. And what I am learning and what I am unwrapping for myself is that I do not need my family to be that support system. You really do not need them. And as much as I would love for them to be there, as much as I love them from a distance, they do not. You can recover on your own, believe it or not. Yeah, you can. And the recovery process is not like this straight pathway. You know what I mean? There's like definitely highs and lows. And I always talk about how it's just not this like linear pathway that we go down. There are... um, times in our lives where we need more self-care and then there's times in our lives where we can just like hustle and power through and um you know I think that just coming on here today and like sharing your story is going to help so many people and I'm really just so grateful for you um for doing that one thing I want to clarify is so you move away from Chicago and you've since asked your parents to go to therapy and they're open to it or not open? They to are it? not open to it. Yeah. They do not want my psychoanalysis, they have told me. So mm. I, and I, um, I will say that it has made me, I have watched my behavior with them become to- toxic even in this day yeah. and age as much as my relationships and my LA family have gotten so strong and I have all these great friendships and I look at my life and I'm like, it's pretty good. You know, my life is pretty good. When I talk to them, I don't feel like my life is good. I don't feel like it's complete. And I want to go back to what I was saying earlier about being able to do recovery on your own. You can't do recovery on your own. I take that back. You can recover on your own. You do need a support system. And you have to form your own support system. Of course. You need, you know, I always tell people like you have everything that you need, like all of the answers are already there, but it's nice to have people that bring that out and that can guide you and show you the way. And I think that that's really, really important for for people to do that. You had mentioned this Facebook group and I want to um, leave people who have maybe been through this and just not even realized how traumatic it was. Um, I want to talk about that because you said that there's over 5,000 people who have been through these programs in this group. Yes, I, that was for, I believe, the collective for just my program alone. Wow. Um, there's actually a website, waspsurvivors.com, W-W-A-S-P-S survivors.com, where you can go and you can get access to resources of all of the schools. Because, I mean, there's, I think they started in like the 80s. And when you start to look up information, because I'm in very, very, very preliminary stages of doing a little bit of research and development to try Mm -hmm. to get some type of story out there about just the landscape of this, because as we, you had mentioned, there was a book called Help at Any Cost written in 2006. There has really not been any literature directed towards this in the last 10 years. But yeah, there's a, there's great Facebook resources, wasp survivors. If you've gone to Cross Creek, there's Cross Creek survivors, there's Cross Creek, there's Cross Creek something else. And um, it's great that we have Facebook and all these um, wonderful online resources. I mean, there's so many. And if you just look up WWASPS in tags on Instagram, you can find information. Or if you look up just troubled teen programs, it's insane. It's really insane. And this goes back to 
just lack of education for these parents, especially at this time. This was 2008. Not everybody was on in the internet looking up extensive information. These yeah. were parents looking to help their child. And I'm sure they almost brainwashed the parents too about what a great program this is and we're going to teach them this and this is how we're going to do it and da 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 and they're not really 100% transparent, you know? Absolutely. And, and that's really such a shame. I, I have another friend who went through one of these programs um, and she, yeah, had a very challenging experience too. So... Well, Sydney, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, I'm obviously here for you. And I am just, your story just really spoke to me. And like the second that you messaged me, I was like, I've got to have this girl on to tell her story because it is important for people to begin to be heard, you know, Absolutely. and for their stories to be shared. And for any parents out there who want more resources about how to develop a healthy attachment with your children and how to best support them. Y'all know I love Janet Lansbury. I push her stuff all the time. I don't care if you've got an infant or a six-year-old. Her stuff, her website is amazing. We're hoping to have a Rye educator come on the podcast to explain this process with you guys. And then that book that I talked about with Dr. Gabor Mate, and we'll make sure to put this in the show notes, Jess, Hold On To Your Kids. It's available on Audible too. And yes, thank you so much. If you guys liked this episode, do me a solid. Head over to the podcast app and make sure that you are subscribed to Recovering From Reality. Not just subscribed, but give me five stars if you really liked it. Comment, make a review. I really appreciate it. And if you're listening on your phone, you could even screenshot a picture of you listening and tag me up on Instagram and I'll do my best to share it within the community. So thanks for listening, you guys. And I hope you loved this episode. This week's affirmation is I'm moving into a place of peace by surrendering and letting go of all of my resentments. And so it is.